Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. That is the fundamental truth, the fundamental reality of the entire universe. We pray, Lord, that this morning you would remind us of that truth. That before anything existed, you are. You are the great I am. You are Jehovah God. You are the everlasting God. And we belong to you because we are your creation. And yet, you sweep mankind away as a flood. We see brokenness and devastation everywhere. Lord, we even recognize this morning that we, in many ways, have been brought to an end. We've been brought to the end of ourselves by your anger. We have been the recipients of your wrath and judgment because our iniquities have been, our sins have been set before you. And every aspect of our broken lives is known to you. And the result is that all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. And we are left once again to consider the power of your anger and your wrath on our sin. And yet, as we've already confessed, Christ is our sure and steady anchor. As we've already confessed in the Catechism, there is a Redeemer who reconciles us to you and and, and redeems all creation so that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Christ is Lord and that your people will live forever reconciled to you in the presence of our Savior. And so this morning, Lord, we confess that we are sinners. We confess that even this week, even this day, we have sinned against you. And we pray that where we have sinned, you would bring us to understand it and to confess it. Convict us, Lord, and lead us to repentance, but... As Christians, we pray that you would help us to live in confidence that we are redeemed and we belong to you, that you are our dwelling place forever. And as your redeemed ones, Father, we pray that we would rejoice this morning in the glorious hope that we have for all eternity. And for anyone who is among us today, who does not know Christ, who has not yet come to saving faith in Him. We pray that you would open their eyes and reveal to them their desperate need of a Savior. 
their terrible condition that they are in on their own in their sin, but of the great hope that is in Christ Jesus. And then as we live in this world, in this life, as a new creation, Father, we pray that you would help us and teach us to number our days that we might gain a heart of wisdom. And help us not to just be aware and have heads full of knowledge about you, but help us to put that knowledge to work. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to our children. And we pray, Lord, that your favor would be upon us, that you would establish the work of our hands upon us, that we would walk in newness of life, that we would be a new creation, that we would live holy lives for your glory. Father, as we turn our attention to your word, we pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, hearts to respond. Every aspect, every chapter, every verse of your word is important. What we find in our passage today has a powerful and important lesson for us to learn, so we pray that you would teach us and help us to obey. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So I invite you to take your Bibles now and turn to Genesis chapter 5. Genesis chapter 5. Over the last several months, we have been studying the first 11 chapters of Genesis. These chapters give to us, they, they reveal to us, if you will, the beginning of beginnings. The beginning of beginnings. These are foundational chapters. They uh, teach us of the origin of the earth and everything that is in it. These chapters teach us God's perspective. God's mind on the world that He created. And these chapters help us to form a correct and an accurate and a biblical worldview. Because central to who we are and to how we behave is our view of the world, right? What we think about the world and why it exists and who we are and why we exist is very much going to dictate how we live our lives, and how we understand the world around us. And we need to understand that the turmoil and the chaos and the conflict that is so prominent in our world today is nothing less than a war of worldviews. And if we are going to truly understand the world in which we live, if we are going to make any kind of sense of what is going on today, and if we're going to have any understanding of what is right and what is wrong and how to live, we must approach all of this from the proper worldview. Otherwise, we won't understand the world. It won't make any sense to us, and any attempt that we make at fixing whatever problems we perceive is only going to make it worse. And I think we see evidence of that throughout our world today. But with a biblical worldview, with a correct view of mankind and the world, we actually can find understanding 
and hope. Understanding and hope. Two things that virtually everyone in the world is pursuing and very few seem to find. We find it when we have a biblical worldview. Now, central to any worldview are some key questions. Can you guess what they are? I'm sure you can think of some questions that you know are going to have to be central to forming any kind of worldview. They're questions like, who am I? Where did I come from? Why am I here? What is truth? And what is reality? How is this world supposed to function? What's wrong with the world? How is it to be made right? How we answer those questions and much more will determine how we think, how we live, what we do with our lives, how we treat others, and even where we spend eternity. But if we simply try to answer those questions on our own, from our own thoughts and experiences and, and desires, then we're not going to come to a solid answer. We might come to one answer on one day and another answer on another day, but our understanding of the world will be incomplete and it will be warped and our lives will be misguided, and we will be left vulnerable to deception and the ever-changing, man-centered, and baseless trends of modern thought. In other words, like James says, we're going to be uh, tossed around with every wind of doctrine. If we are going to answer these foundational questions in any meaningful way, we must answer them according to the truth. We must, first of all, understand that there is such a thing as objective truth, that it has been revealed to us, and that that is the basis for answering these questions. But we also need to understand that behind those worldview questions are some even more foundational questions. Did you notice all the questions I asked had to do with man and me? Why am I here? Who am I? There's a more foundational focus here. Questions like, who is God? Does he exist? What is he like? What has he said? And why does it matter? These questions drive us to a basic acknowledgement that God exists, that we are accountable to him, and that he has told us what we need to know. And so we submit ourselves to God. We look to his word the inspired, inerrant, authoritative, and sufficient Word of God. And from there, we find the instruction and the revelation that we need for all of the other questions. And so, as we have come to Genesis, in the first 11 chapters, we have already seen in Genesis chapters 1 and 2 that all things were created by God, that God exists and He created all things by the word of his power. And we learn that over the course of six days, God spoke everything into existence. And we learn that everything that he created was with a specific design and purpose, and that everything he made was very good. We also learned that mankind was created in God's image. We learned what that meant and what that 
what the implications of it for how, are for how we interact with one another. We learn that man was called to exercise dominion over the earth for the good of mankind. But then in chapters 3 and 4, we learn that something went terribly wrong with this creation. We learn that mankind sinned against God, and that sin is not just some innocent little mistake, that it is rebellion against God's authority and His command. It is choosing to go our own way. The result is that our relationship with God has now been broken. And not only that, but as we get into chapter 4, we learn that our relationship with one another is naturally broken. And that our relationship even with creation itself is broken. And we see already, by the time we get to the end of chapter 4, we see what that brokenness looks like. Now, as we come to Genesis chapter 5, we see a genealogy. And you're thinking, oh my goodness, he's going to preach a genealogy. Yes, I am. Why? Because it's in the Bible. Okay, so hang with me. Now, most people would quickly skim over a passage like Genesis chapter 5. But I believe that would be a mistake. Chapter 5 records the family line of Adam through his godly son, Seth, which contributes to the storyline that God is telling us from the very beginning all the way through. And along the way, this chapter, this genealogy is saturated, or, or not saturated, well, it is saturated with truth. It is structured in such a way as to give us a quick overview or a summary, or a snapshot of everything we've learned so far, which gives us a snapshot of the human condition. Not just back then, but in every age of history, even today. Chapter 5 is a transitional chapter in the story of Genesis, transitioning from the foundation of the world to now showing us the degeneration and destruction of the world because of sin. But as a transitional chapter, it gives us a quick recap of the reality of the world as it has been revealed so far. And it is important for us to see because here it reminds us of who we are. What is wrong with the world? What is wrong with us? How it is to be made right? This chapter reminds us of the truth about the human condition and what we must do about it. So I'm going to ask you to put on your focusing glasses as we read this text, because it's a genealogy, but I'm going to read it. So follow along as we read Genesis chapter 5. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. 
Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he fathered Kenan. Enosh lived after he fathered Kenan 815 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. When Kenan had lived 70 years, he fathered Mahalalel. Kenan lived after he fathered Mahalalel 840 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Kenan were 910 years, and he died. When Mahalalel had lived 65 years, he fathered Jared. Mahalalel lived after he fathered Jared 830 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years and he died. When Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. Jared lived after he fathered Enoch 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. Then when Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years, and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he fathered Lamech. Methuselah lived after he fathered Lamech 782 years, and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Methuselah were 969 years. And he died. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Lamech were 777 years. And he died. After Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. This chapter covers 1,556 years. And we read at the very beginning in verse 1, this is the book of the generations of Adam. That's a key phrase throughout the book of Genesis. These are the generations. That's a, a, a key phrase. It marks a transition in sections of the book of Genesis. It marks a transition into a new section of the storyline. Now when it says this is the book of the generations, the idea there is that this is the official written record of Adam's family history. We don't know when this line was first written down. We know Moses is writing the book of Genesis as the people are getting ready to uh, walk into the promised land. And we also know that there was plenty of opportunity for an oral history here because Adam was alive for 930 years. He had a firsthand eyewitness account of the Garden of Eden that lasted all the way up to the life of Lamech, who gave, who, whose son was Noah. If you look at the generations from, from 
Adam to Moses, who is writing this down, there is actually a very small number of people that it would have taken to transmit that orally from one generation to the next because they were alive so long. We don't know when exactly this was written down, but the fact that it says this is the book of the generations of Adam shows that this is the official record. That's the idea there. This is written down. This is recorded for the generations to understand. Now, some have suggested that the names in chapter 5 are merely representative, that it's not a complete genealogy. And I don't think that's the case here. The numbers are too specific, and there are several other passages, at least three in Scripture, where this genealogy is recorded just as it is revealed here. And not to mention that, yes, this is a selective uh, genealogy in that it doesn't give every person who was there. It gives the first of each generation. And that's because it was making a specific point. But nevertheless, it is a tight record. And we must take it literally and at face value. But with that in mind, we also need to understand that this is not just a meaningless list of names. It is structured in such a way, and it uses language in such a way as to give us a snapshot of the reality of humanity, of the human condition, even in every generation. And I want us to notice what it says about the human condition from three perspectives. I want us to look first at the unspeakable privilege that it reminds us of, and then a tragic curse that is the reality of mankind, and then finally, a transforming hope that gives us the good news in the light of that tragic curse. And so let's notice, first of all, that this text begins by describing the human condition in terms of an unspeakable privilege. We see this mostly in verses 1 and 2, but before we get there, I just want to note that there are names listed throughout this chapter, and that that is significant. The fact that God cares to record specific names of specific people in this godly line of Seth tells us that God is interested in individual people. That he doesn't see mankind as just a nameless, faceless mass of bodies. That he sees us as people. And what an unspeakable privilege it is just at the beginning to consider that God knows his people by name, right? We don't even know each other very well by name sometimes, right? We forget names and we have to say, wait, wait, what was that again? God knows every one of us by name. Now, as we consider this unspeakable privilege, I understand that the word privilege in recent days has become a bad word. It's become a word that is to be avoided, and I think that's unfortunate. Because that word communicates something wonderful in Scripture. It's not about the greatness of the ones who've received the privilege. It is about the greatness of the grace and mercy of God who's given it. Right. So that is a great concept. And we understand privilege is never to be abused, but it is to be embraced as a gift from God for a particular purpose, for His purposes. In verses 1 and 2, we see a review of the creation of mankind, a summary that highlights several distinct privileged characteristics 
of mankind by God's creation and design. First of all, we see in the last part of verse 1, when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. The likeness of God. That takes us back to chapter 1, doesn't it? Verse 27, 26 and 27, reminds us that mankind was created in the image of God. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created it. You see that repetition? You think that's significant? God created man in his own image. Oh, oh, and by the way, in the image of God, he created man, right? It highlights the uniqueness of man and the privilege of being created in the image of God. And in chapter 1, we learned that the image of God can include self-awareness. It includes the ability to reason, the ability to, to relate to one another, the ability to love, to love beauty. There's an emotional aspect of that, but even greater and, and more deeply, this idea of the image of God has to do with spiritual understanding, the capacity to receive God's word and to be related to him to have fellowship with Him. We are not just another kind of animal. We are not even just a more evolved animal. We are a privileged creation, holding a privileged position in creation, one that enables us to hear from God, to know God, and to have intimate fellowship with God. We were created to know Him. Now, the next aspect of this unspeakable privilege is found in the next phrase, the beginning of verse 2. Male and female, He created them. And again, that goes back to chapter 1. Verse 27, male and female, He created them. And again, as we've seen in chapter 1, that speaks of the distinctiveness and purposefulness of God's design, the way He made it. He made only two genders. The males he designed and wired to function a certain way, and the females likewise. And I know that there's some overlap, and it's not necessarily uniform for every person. Everybody's different, but the design is intended by God to be complementary. And it is good. And with that, we also find the design of marriage. One man, one woman created to complete one another in carrying out God's commission to exercise dominion over the earth. And then when we back up and look at it more broadly, in summary terms as we do in chapter 5, we see that just as mankind was created to have fellowship with God, so mankind was created to have relationships with one another. And so in all of this, so far, we see the likeness of God. We see the image of God. We see the design of God in creation. That we are the way we are by God's good design. Then next, in the next part of verse 2, we read, And he blessed them. And that goes much deeper than we might think on the surface. God didn't bless man by looking at him and saying, aw, how sweet. God didn't bless man by saying, I wish you the best. We learn in chapter 1 and we learn in chapter 2 what the blessing of God means. 
it speaks of the favor of God that is poured out on mankind. And it speaks of the commission of God that he gives to mankind for how to live in the world. In chapter 1, we saw that the blessing of God included his call and his ability to exercise dominion over the earth. That's chapter 1, verse 26. We see God's call to reproduce, to multiply, and to fill the earth. That's chapter 1, verse 28. And we see God's gift and supply of food and resources to mankind. That's chapter 1, verses 29 and 30. God was calling mankind to a particular task, and God was equipping them for a particular task. And so in this blessing, we see the dominion. We see multiplication, fruitfulness, and provision. All of this as the manifestation of the blessing of God on His creation. And so we see the likeness of God. We see the design of God. We see the commission of God and the, pro- the provision from God. And then in the next part of verse 2, we read that He named them. We've already talked about how in Scripture, naming something is an expression of authority and ownership. But when God names man, it includes even more than that. It's an expression of His sovereignty over mankind, yes, and of His ownership and authority over us, But there's another aspect too. Who else names people? Fathers, parents name their children, right? There's an aspect of fatherhood here wrapped up in the fact that God is the one who named man. Adam named the animals. God named man. And it speaks of the intimate relationship, once again, that God intended between Himself and mankind. And so we see the likeness of God. We see the design of God, the commission of God, the authority, sovereignty, and fatherhood of God. And then finally, at the end of verse 2, God named them man when they were created. Not just that God named us, but what God named us is significant. The word man comes from the word meaning earth, or ground, or even dirt. And lest we get carried away with thoughts of this great privilege we have as the pinnacle of God's creation, we are reminded that we are just dirt. Though we hold a privileged and exalted position, we are reminded, even in chapter 3, verse 19, that we are dust, and to dust we shall return. So don't get too uppity about yourself. Our significance is not found in ourselves alone, but in God's blessing on us and in God's relationship with us. Now that has a positive and a negative implication for us, doesn't it? First of all, understanding that yes, we are privileged, but we are just dirt reminds us and and it destroys all arrogance in our own minds, right? Reminds us that we are not what we are because we are what we are. We are what we are because God is who He is and because of what He has done for us. There's no room for pride and arrogance. It drives us to 
humility. But then at the same time, this also destroys our despair. Yes, we are just dirt, but we are privileged dirt. Why? Because God has set his favor on us. We have received his blessing. And in him, we find our identity, meaning, and purpose. All of this is key to a proper worldview, to understanding ourselves in the world in which we live. So here's a powerful and glorious review of chapters 1 and 2. Mankind is the pinnacle of God's creation. We hold an exalted, privileged position in creation and before God himself by God's gracious design. This is God's intention for all men, that we would bear his image, that we would live by his design and under his authority and have intimate, trusting fellowship with him. We understand that. We understand a little bit more about what's gone wrong with the world now, don't we? Because we do not, by nature, have that intimate relationship with Him. We are separated from God on this most foundational aspect of our existence. And so, as we have already seen, something went terribly wrong with creation. This unspeakable privilege is is marvelous. But it is not the only aspect of the human condition. There is bad news, too. There is a tragic curse, and the rest of the chapter bears that out with some noticeable repetitions. Now, before we get into that, I want us to understand that 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 phrase, a tragic curse, makes it sound like everything that could possibly go wrong with mankind has gone wrong, and that everything is just tragedy and despair. And I understand that that is is not our experience, is it? There is some good for us to enjoy in this world. If you don't think that, you just need to go for a walk outside today, okay? And look around you. You need to observe some of the positive aspects of the human existence and experience, right? That there is a good side to this, and, and I do understand that. All along, even as we have seen humanity plunged into sin, we have seen God's common grace and God's compassion on display, even in fallen and sinful humanity. So, before we get to the bad news, let's consider the good news. There is a phrase repeated in every generation listed in this chapter, except for Noah. And the phrase is this, and had other sons and daughters. And even with Noah, he had sons. That phrase, and had other sons and daughters, is repeated nine times in this passage, in verses 4, 7, 10, 13, 16, 19, 22, 26, 30. Got it? Good. This phrase reminds us that while the curse is serious, and it affects every part of life and creation. It is not the whole picture. Reproduction is still happening. Humanity is still growing and advancing, as we saw in chapter 4, by God's grace. And His design is still intact, though it is marred. Though mankind has sinned, and by nature he is separated from God, God still, by His grace, makes good on his promise 
for offspring and growth. And every one of us is alive today because he has made good on that promise. Because of God's goodness and his grace, may we never forget that we live only by God's magnificent mercy and grace. And that the fact that we live is a testimony to it. But there's another phrase that is repeated throughout this chapter, and it highlights the bad news of the human condition. And it's that phrase, you probably picked up on this one pretty quickly, and he died. That phrase is repeated eight times in this chapter, in verses 5, 8, 11, 14, 17, 20, 27, and 31. It is all throughout the chapter. It is the ominous drumbeat of reality for every person of every generation throughout history. As the hymn writer Isaac Watts wrote, Time, like an ever-rolling stream, bears all its sons away. They fly forgotten as a dream dies at the opening day. Boy, there's some encouragement for you, right? Or listen to this, the words of Solomon in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, all are from the dust, and to dust all return. That is the sad reality of life. God had warned Adam in the garden that if he ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he would die. And as soon as he did, he died spiritually. There was that separation between him and God. But then here's, here again is another display of his grace. Did Adam die physically? Yes, but 930 years later, God kept his promise, but by grace he allowed him to live and he allowed mankind to continue to reproduce and grow. He gave him 930 years of life. And then notice throughout this chapter, each generation lives around 900 years. It's a demonstration of God's grace and patience, even with sinful people. But we will notice very quickly that the lifespans are going to get shorter and shorter very quickly as the effects of sin continue to take their toll on mankind. And especially after the flood, when the, the landscape and the climate changes, and, and as we continue to go through the, the genetic degeneration or whatever it is throughout all ages, this continues to go downhill. And we feel it, don't we? Even those of us who are young, except for maybe the really young ones, we feel this, that even as we grow, even as we live, even as we accomplish things in this life, we have this sense that we are progressing toward death. And we feel it. That is the sad reality and effect of sin. It is the ominous drumbeat of chapter 5, and he died. And he died, and he died, and he died. And it is meant to remind us that death is the reality. It is the curse of mankind because of our sin. It is a reminder that death is coming to all of us, and we must be ready. That the world is passing away and everything in it. That life is brief, and eternity is coming. That brings us to consider now, thirdly, some wonderful exceptions to the pattern of death in this chapter. We need to acknowledge the pattern of death, but
But we also need to understand that God is giving us hope in the midst of that constant drumbeat, that constant reminder. And so we find a transforming hope. And in this, we learn that this pattern of death does not have to be the end of the story. That separation from God does not have to be the end of the story. That sin and grief and hopelessness do not have to be the end of the story. We see here some notable exceptions to that constant drumbeat throughout this passage. And the first exception to the pattern of this chapter is Enoch. We read in verse 21, When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were, whoop, not 900 years, 365 years. Well, that's nowhere near 900. What cut his life short? Why was it, why, why did this happen? What, what went on? Look at verse 24. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. That phrase, he was not, has the idea, he, he was not found. It's almost like he went out for a walk one day, he never came home, and no one ever found him. Now when we hear a story like that, we think something got him, he died. But Scripture pretty clearly tells us, not just here, but in other passages, he wasn't found because he wasn't there. God took him. He didn't die. God took him straight up to heaven. You know, there's only one other place in Scripture where we read of somebody doing that, of that happening to somebody. You know who it is? Elijah. 2 Kings chapter 2. But what this passage wants to highlight about Enoch, what distinguishes him from the rest of mankind, is not that he didn't die, although that's pretty cool. And it is significant. But what distinguishes him is this. He walked with God. It says it twice in just a short few verses. And there's only one other person that we read of who is said to have walked with God. You know who that was? Noah. And we're going to read about him in the next chapter. But when it says he walked with God, that's not meaning to indicate that he was some sort of super spiritual Christian and, and that he was perfect and he never made a mistake and he was walking on a plane that the rest of us couldn't walk on. The idea of walking with God here has to do with constant fellowship, of communion, a constant relationship with God. What does that look like? Have you ever met somebody that you know just walks with God? What does it look like? Well, it doesn't look like being a hermit. Enoch wasn't a hermit. He didn't live off by himself, alone from everybody, and just never go out into a, a, a place where he might commit a sin. That's not what this says. In fact, we read in verse 2 that he had sons and daughters. Not just Methuselah, but others. Which means he was married. He had children. He lived a life. Hebrews 11 verse 5 adds that he lived by faith. Okay, so walking with God means living by faith. It also says that he pleased God, living in a way that pleases God, walking with God in that way. But then we read something else really interesting about him all the way forward in our Bibles to the end, to the book of Jude. 
in verses 14 and 15, we read, it was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. What's that saying? Enoch prophesied. Enoch proclaimed the judgment of God on sin. Enoch pled with his generation to repent and return to the Lord. And so we see a man who was living according to God's design, who was active in fulfilling God's creation mandate, who was pursuing godly character by faith, who was constant in his communion with God, and who pled with others to repent and believe in him. In other words, Enoch walked with God. And walking with God means living by faith in constant fellowship and obedience to the Lord. And once again, we see a life that walks with God marked by faith, belief in God, knowledge of what God has said, obedience, holiness, purity, and even disciple-making, all wrapped up in the example that we see in Enoch. And here's a faithful man who once again believed in the promise of God in, in, that we found in chapter 3, verse 15, that a deliverer would come. And he held on to that promise as a guide for how he lived his life and for the message that he proclaimed. This is a life of faith. It is a life of hope for eternity. And it's a life that we all are called to, you and me alike. Enoch was not a super Christian. He was a model for the life we should all live. And he is a testimony that there is hope for eternal life. He looked forward to the deliverer who would come. We don't look forward to the deliverer. We look back. In the New Testament, we are told that that deliverer has come. His name is Jesus. And for all who turn away from their sin, who live by faith in Him, the Son of God, though we die on this earth, yet, like Enoch, we will live for eternity. So Enoch is a testimony that all who walk with God are rescued from sin, rescued from death and despair and emptiness. There's great hope in that, isn't there? As we come to the end of the chapter, we see another somewhat exception to the pattern. We don't read that Noah died, although we know that he will later. But here we are introduced to Noah. And we read in verse 29 that Lamech, that's not the same Lamech as in chapter 4, this is a good Lamech. He names his son Noah, which means rest or comfort. And he says, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. We'll study Noah more in depth when we get to chapter 6 and beyond. But here we are introduced to him. We have a sort of prophecy as to what God has in store for him. And it's big. But I, all, all I want us to notice here today is, is this, that Noah 
like Enoch, walked with God. We see that in chapter 6, verse 9. And we see that he obeyed God's command. He obeyed God's command to build something he had never heard of in preparation to a storm he could never comprehend because he had never seen one, much less one on that magnitude. And he did it in the face of 120 years of resistance and mockery. All right, so what was important to Noah? Walking with God, what did that lead him to do? To serve God and obey God. That's what we see here throughout Noah's life. And just if I can to round all this out, Seth isn't an exception to the pattern of chapter 5. And we really should put Adam here too, Adam and Seth. They're really not an exception to the pattern. They're part of the pattern. And yet it all began there with that godly line, right? And we read at the end of chapter 4 that it was with the line of Seth and their influence in the world that at that time people began to call upon the name of the Lord. So we have three people, four if you want to include Adam, and three characteristics that we are called to as we live a life life of hope. We see walking with God, serving God, seeking God. Begins with seeking God. This is the hope for all mankind in the midst of our tragic condition. We live in a sinful world. So we began with the good news of God's design for mankind. We're made by God Himself. We're privileged by His grace in every way. We're designed for intimate fellowship with Him. But then we saw the bad news that all that's been broken by our sin. That we've been separated from God. We've been cursed under its power. We've been cursed by the sting of death. But then we see the good news of deliverance and hope. That it is possible to walk with God. And to live eternally with God. And so the call is simple to look at these examples and follow their lives. Seek the Lord. Serve the Lord. Walk with the Lord. I like how one preacher summarizes this chapter. He says, three men mark this genealogy in a very special way. Adam, or Seth, he shows shows us the, the reign of sin and death. And Enoch, he shows us the hope of conquering death. And Noah, he tells us of a new day and a new creation that will come after the judgment. And that, he says, is the history of redemption. The story of Scripture, the fall, salvation, and the new creation. All of that, we're given a glimpse of it in chapter 5. And the key to all of this The key that holds all of this together and makes it all confirmed is to recognize who that Deliverer is. The Savior who gives us that hope, and that is Jesus Christ. We're told God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that's Jesus Christ, that whoever believes in Him, and only Him, should not perish have eternal life. 
We're told that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. We were created for fellowship with God. But we are born naturally out of fellowship with Him, separated from Him because of our sin. But through Christ we are given hope for a reconciled relationship with God, one that we all desperately need. And so we are called to seek Him, serve Him, and walk with Him. So the question is, what's, what's wrong with the world today? What's wrong with the world today is not riots. It's not cops. It's not political turmoil. It's not the Democrats. It's not the Republicans. It's not the independents. It's not the NBA. It's not a hurricane. It's not found in the headlines. It's found in the scripture. What is wrong with the world today at the core of it all? sin. It has separated us all from God and it has corrupted us to the very core of our being. And if we don't deal with the problem at that level, we are not dealing with the problem. We're only dealing with a symptom. And when we do that, we're only going to make it worse because it doesn't fix anything. But what we need to understand is that God has provided a way to deal with the problem. He has made a way for it to be made right, not by our effort, but by faith in Jesus Christ. And how did he do that? Christ paid the penalty for our sin in our place on the cross so that God could be just by punishing sin and yet still be the justifier by reconciling us to him through faith in Christ alone. That is the need of every person today. And if that has not been what you have been after, whatever else you have pursued in this life, you are lost. And I plead with you, look to Jesus Christ to save you from your sin and to reconcile you to the God who made you. By faith, Enoch, before he was taken, Hebrews 11.5 tells us, was commended as having pleased God. He walked with God. Is that your testimony too? It can be. By calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, Scripture tells us you will be saved. Let's pray.